Hello and welcome to Best Virginia, the show where we talk about the history, folklore, and culture of the wild and wonderful state of West Virginia. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Best Virginia Podcast. Hey y'all, welcome back to Best Virginia. I'm your host Jordan, and this time around we're going to talk about the death of Hank Williams. Now this is something that a lot of people don't actually associate with West Virginia, but it remains a little bit of a mystery to this day. The country music legend died almost 70 years ago in Oak Hill, West Virginia on January 1st, 1953. To understand the significance of this event, you first have to understand a little bit about Hank. During the making of this episode, one of my friends asked me what's the next one going to be about, and when I told her, she said, who's that? I was appalled. So I guess there are people out there that don't know who he is, which blows my mind. I'm not even a huge country music fan, but I always thought that everyone knew Hank. Uh, So for those of you who don't know, uh, Hank was born Hiram Williams in 1923 on September 17th. Um, He had a pretty short career. Uh, He died when he was 29 years old. Hank only had six years of recording under his belt, uh, where he only recorded two studio albums, However, during his lifetime, he had seven number one hits, which is pretty impressive. Even after his death, Hank continued to be a success. In 1987 or 1989, he won Grammys. Um, In 1989, he also won CMA Awards and a Music Video Award. Um, And in 2010, he was awarded a Pulitzer Prize for his pivotal role in transforming country music. So long story short, he was a pretty big deal. However, despite his success, life for Hank wasn't always easy. He was born with a mild case of spina bifida, which would go on to cause him lifelong back pain, which later contributed to his abuse of drugs and alcohol. Then in 1951, during a hunting trip in Tennessee, he fell, re-aggravating his back pain, which eventually required surgery. It was during this time that he began to become dependent on alcohol and prescription pain medicine, which led to his divorce from his first wife, Audrey, in June of 1952. And he was demoted from the Grand Ole Opry due to his habitual drunkenness, that same year. He went on to marry his second wife, Billie Jean, that October. By the end of 1952, he had began to suffer heart problems. He met with Horace Raphael Toby Marshall in Oklahoma City, who claimed to be a doctor. Marshall had previously been convicted for forgery and had been paroled and released from the Oklahoma State Penitentiary in 1951. He claimed to be a doctor of science using a degree that he bought for $35 from the Chicago School of Applied Science. He had the diploma spell out his credentials as Doctor of Science and Psychology. Under the name of Dr. C.W. Lemon, he prescribed Williams with amphetamines, seconol, chloral hydrate, and morphine. By December 1952, Hank's life had begun to fall apart. He was staying at his mother's boarding house in Montgomery, Alabama. His career had been slipping after being let go from the Grand Ole Opry. He was taking morphine shots for constant back pain after major surgery the year before. He was taking chloral hydrate, a dangerous sedative, to sleep, and was back to playing the same backwater clubs he climbed his way out of just a few years earlier. He decided to embark on a short tour through West Virginia and Ohio, which was thought by some to be the start of a comeback. Our story begins in Montgomery, Alabama on December 30, 1952, with a young man named Charles Carr. Carr was only 19 at the time, and he was on Christmas break from Auburn University. He was hired by Hank Williams to drive him to the shows in West Virginia and Ohio. Hank knew Carr's father, who ran a taxi service in Montgomery. Carr said, 
Dad was a friend of Hank's and tried to look out for him in the tough times. He was there talking with Dad and Hank asked me if I'd be interested in making the trip. So here was Hank loading up his guitar, stage suits, and other things he would need for the trip into his baby blue 1952 Cadillac. He was said to be wearing dark blue pants, a white button-up shirt, a tie, and a navy blue overcoat. It was unseasonably cold over the south due to a snowstorm that was moving in and covering the entire southeastern United States. Once Williams and Carr hit the road, they decided to drive around Montgomery for a while visiting a radio DJ and someone talked Hank into attending a highway contractor's convention at a local hotel where Hank more than likely had a few drinks. After that, Hank had Carr drive him to his doctor to get a shot of morphine to ease his back pain for the ride to Charleston, West Virginia. The doctor smelled liquor on his breath and turned him away. Hank then had Carr take him to another doctor where he ended up getting his shot. Then sometime in the early afternoon, the two set off for West Virginia on Highway 31 towards Birmingham. Carr remembered Williams being in good spirits as the trip began. They told jokes, sang songs, and traded tales as they drove. Carr said Hank's song Jambalaya was just out on the radio, and he asked me what I thought of it. I told him I didn't care for it, that it didn't make a bit of sense to me. Hank laughed and said, You son of a bitch, you just understand the French like I do. We were just a couple of young guys on a car trip having fun. They spent the night of December 30th at the Redmont Hotel in Birmingham. Carr remembered Williams buying a pint of bonded bourbon in Fort Payne, Alabama. He also made one waiter very happy. He walked up to our server at a restaurant we ate at, said Carr. And Hank said, here's the biggest tip you ever got. And it gave him $50. Money didn't mean anything to Hank, Carr said. Within 30 minutes of checking into the Redmont, several women made their way to Hank's room. Hank was said to have asked the girls where they were from, to which one replied, Heaven. Hank then told her that she was the reason he was going to hell. The women eventually left and the two men ordered meals from room service. On December 31, 1952, New Year's Eve, the weather began to get worse and by the time the two reached Chattanooga, Tennessee, Hank decided to try to catch a flight from Knoxville to make the Charleston show on time. The flight took off at 3.30 p.m., but turned around due to bad weather, leaving them stranded in Knoxville for the night. The Charleston show was a bust, but they still hoped to make the Canton, Ohio show. Carr got them a room at the 17-story Andrew Johnson Hotel in Knoxville, Tennessee, checking in at 7.08 p.m. to wait out the storm. The two talked and had dinner in their room. Carr said, as I remember, Hank didn't eat much of anything. He had the hiccups real bad. Carr contacted the hotel doctor, Dr. P.H. Cardwell, who came and gave Williams two injections of morphine mixed with vitamin B12. Carr said he calmed down after that, but looking back, maybe the hiccups or the indigestion could have been the beginning of a coronary. Williams dozed off fully clothed, but around 10.30 p.m., Carr got a call from the concert promoter telling him that they had to leave right away and drive right through the night to make the Canton show. There was some kind of penalty clause in his contract, so we had to be there for the New Year's Day concert or else, said Carr. The staff at the Andrew Johnson rolled Hank, who was making wheezing sounds, to his car in a wheelchair and was said by Carr to have gotten into the vehicle on his own. The porters bundled him into the back seat of the Cadillac, laying his arms across his chest in a V position and covered him with his overcoat. One doorman claimed to have spoken to Williams before he left, saying that Hank was conscious and joking around with him. The men left Knoxville towards Canton around 10.45 p.m. Carr said that the traffic out of Knoxville was slow moving because of the roads being so bad. We were trying to push it, but we didn't have much luck, said Carr. Carr got a ticket about an hour later in Blaine, Tennessee, when he almost hit a Tennessee Highway Patrolman head-on while trying to pass another car. Charles Carr was pulled over by Corporal Swan Kitts and asked whether Hank was okay, saying that he looked dead. Carr told him that he had been drinking and was given a sedative. Kitts did not disturb Hank, but Carr 
had to follow him into Rutledge, Tennessee, where he was arraigned and charged $25 for reckless driving. Carr and Hank left Rutledge around 1 a.m. When they made it to Bristol, Tennessee, Carr decided to stop and pick up a relief driver named Donald Surface. Surface drove for a while, and Carr claims to have dropped him off around Bluefield or Princeton, West Virginia, where they had stopped for coffee and a quick bite to eat. Carr said, I remember Hank got out to stretch his legs, and I asked him if he wanted a sandwich or something. Hank said, no, I just want to get some sleep. Carr went on to say, I don't know if that's the last thing he said, but it's the last thing I remember him telling me. Around 5 a.m., Carr pulled off the side of the road to check on Williams after an eerie silence from the back seat. He looked back, and Hank was lying with his head toward the passenger seat and had his left hand across his chest. Carr said he still had his blue overcoat on and had a blanket over him that had fallen off. I reached back to put the blanket back over him and felt a little unnatural resistance from his arm, said Carr. Carr drove on up to Burdett's Pure Oil Station and told the men working there that he had a problem. They were unable to wake Hank and told Carr that there was a problem and pointed him in the direction of Oak Hill Hospital, which was about six miles away. Carr drove Hank to the emergency room, where he was carried into the hospital by two orderlies by the armpits and feet. Hank Williams was pronounced dead at 7 a.m. on January 1, 1953, at just 29 years old, by Dr. Diego Nunari, who predicted that he had been dead for about six hours, although he wasn't able to determine the exact time of death. The autopsy was performed across the street at Tyree Funeral Home by Dr. Ivan Malinin, a Russian intern who spoke almost no English. In his report, Malinin noted needle marks in Williams' arms, bruises on various parts of his body, a whelp on his forehead, and hemorrhages in the heart and neck. The bruises were said to have been from a bar fight in Montgomery. Traces of alcohol were found in his blood, but no evidence of drugs. It's unlikely that his blood was tested for drugs. The official cause of death was ruled as acute right ventricular dilation. Williams' body was transported to Montgomery on January 2nd. He was placed in a silver coffin that was shown at his mother's boarding house for two days. His funeral took place on January 4th at the Montgomery Auditorium, with his coffin placed on the flower-covered stage. An estimated 15 to 25,000 people passed by the silver coffin during those days, and the auditorium was filled with 2,750 mourners. During his funeral, four women fainted, and a fifth was carried out of the auditorium in hysterics after falling at the foot of the casket. His funeral was said to have been the largest funeral ever held for a citizen of Alabama by a long shot as well as the largest event ever held in Montgomery, surpassing Jefferson Davis's inauguration as president of the Confederacy. Around two tons of flowers were sent to the funeral. His remains are currently at the Oakwood Annex in Montgomery, Alabama. The president of MGM told Billboard magazine that the company got only five requests for pictures of Hank during the weeks leading up to his death, but over 300 afterwards. The local record shops sold out of all his records, and customers continued to request all of his records. His final single released during his lifetime was titled I'll Never Get Out of This World Alive and was the number one country song for six weeks and served as the title for a 1964 biopic starring George Hamilton. By March of 1953, Toby Marshall, the man who posed as the doctor who prescribed Hank Williams his dangerous cocktail of medicines, began being investigated for illicit drug trafficking. During the initial hearing, Marshall insisted that he was a doctor and offered a list of his patients including Hank Williams. In an attempt to defend his position, he claimed that Williams possibly committed suicide, stating that he told him prior that he had decided to destroy the Hank Williams that was making the money they were getting. He claimed that Williams was planning to kill himself because of his declining career. 
saying most of his bookings were of the honky-tonk beer joint variety that he simply hated. If he came to this conclusion, he still had enough prestige left as a star to make a first-class production of it. Whereas six months from now, unless he pulled himself back up into some high-class bookings, he might have been playing for nickels and dimes on Skid Row. On March 10th, he was called again to testify, acknowledging that he had falsely claimed to be a physician. On March 12th, 1953, Hank's late wife, Billie Jean Jones, appeared before the Oklahoma committee, stating that she received a bill for $800 from Marshall for Hank's treatment. She refused to pay it and went on to say that Marshall attempted to convince her to pay him, assuring her that he would pave her the way to collect her husband's estate. Jones said, I've never accepted the report that my husband died of a heart attack. On March 19th, Marshall declared that he felt Williams was depressed and committed suicide by intentionally overdosing on the drugs that Marshall had prescribed him. Marshall had admitted that he had also prescribed the same sedative, chloral hydrate, to his recently deceased wife, Faye, as a headache medicine, but he denied any responsibility in either deaths. On March 21st, Robert Travis of the State Crime Bureau determined that Marshall's handwriting corresponded to that of Dr. Cecil W. Lemon on six prescriptions written to Williams. That same day, the district attorney's office declared that after a new review of the autopsy report of Faye Marshall, toxicological and microscopic tests confirmed that her death on March 3rd was not related to the medication prescribed by her husband. Marshall's parole was revoked, returning him to prison to complete his forgery sentence. Later, the hotel doctor from the Andrew Johnson offered a statement, claiming that he had given Hank two shots just hours before his death. Williams had been drinking, but the doctor denied the injections were the final blow that did him in. He said, The shots I gave Williams had nothing to do with his death. It is ridiculous to think that they did. Some people theorized that Hank was already dead at the Andrew Johnson and that the porters carried his corpse to the car. There are other stories that claim that Hank died on up the road with an unfinished song in his hands, bedroom slippers on his feet, and a pint of vodka in his coat pocket. Charles Carr disagreed with these stories, claiming that Williams was very much alive and wearing white cowboy boots, a stylish blue overcoat, and a white fedora when they left Knoxville. The legacy of Hank Williams continues to live on in many forms. There was an off-Broadway play titled Hank Williams' Lost Highway, a biopic titled I Saw the Light, starring Tom Hiddleston from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, as well as over 700 songs being written about him. That's not to mention the success of his son, Hank Williams Jr., who came to fame in his own right. I think it's safe to say that Hank Williams was more than just another star that had burned out too quickly. So I'd like to go on to talk about Charles Carr for a second. Carr was determined to not let this moment define his life. He went back to Auburn University, finished his degree, he went on to serve in the army in Europe. He got married, had kids, and became a successful businessman. For years, he was reluctant to talk about Hank's last ride, but eventually he began to agree to do interviews and became involved with the Hank Williams Museum in Montgomery, Alabama. Also finding its way back to the museum was Hank's 1952 Baby Blue Cadillac. Once in an interview with Charles Carr, while he was recounting the last hours of Hank's life and the aftermath, he said, I called my dad and told him what happened, and then Hank's mother called me at the hospital. One of the parting things she said was, don't let anything happen to the car. The vehicle is still available for viewing at the museum. Charles Carr died at 79 years old on July 1, 2013 after battling a brief illness. There are lots of theories about Hank's death uh, regarding when and how exactly he died, and 
it really is a mystery. Even Takar, who was there, um, he only he can only know so much um, being in the front seat and driving. Um, my personal opinion is that he probably was knocking on death's door as they put him in his car at the Andrew Johnson. Um, from the sounds of it, uh, even though there are conflicting reports, I think that he was probably still alive when they put him in the car, um, but he probably did die shortly after. Um, and I, my suspicion is that it was probably due to mixing the drugs and alcohol, um, mixing sedatives and alcohol, and you know, who knows the amounts of these drugs that he was using. Um, I certainly don't. Um, however, there was one inconsistency that I kind of wanted to point out. Um, in one interview, Carr was reported to have said that Hank was found dead in the same position that the porters at the Andrew Johnson Hotel had placed him in when they left Knoxville. However, in other reports, he was quoted as saying that Hank got out to stretch his legs when the two stopped in Bluefield. Now, I don't really know what that means. Um, I don't particularly think that uh, I don't particularly think that Carr had anything to do or uh, to do with his death. I don't think that there was any foul play. Um, you know, like it says up in the, like it, like it, like I said in the beginning. You know, Hank was he he his career was slipping away. His lifestyle was slipping away. He uh, he he probably was suffering some depression. Um, that's just a guess. Um, you don't typically you don't typically develop drinking problems because you're happy, um, especially not when your life's falling apart and you're losing your career uh, that that you got that was incomparable to other people at the time. Um, he was a member of the Grand Ole Opry uh, in his 20s. He was a number one recording artist. He was, you know, he's still a legend. Um, you know, I think... I think that plays its part. I think that would have that would tear anyone down to the point where they would do, you know, they would really really kind of lose a sense of, you know, a sense of purpose. But long story short, I do find that inconsistency interesting. Um, like I said, I don't really know what it means. Um, it could just be misquoted information. Um, some of these reports were from newspapers that I'd never heard of uh, that I found online. Um, you know, I try to choose credible sources, but, you know, some of this stuff's kind of hard to, so that's why I try to throw a little bit of everything in there. That way I can try to give you guys the best, the best overall, the best overall account of things. Um, but, you know, I think this, this story is really interesting. A lot of, like I said in the beginning, a lot of people don't know that this even took place in West Virginia. Um, you know, you don't really, you don't really associate that with the state. I just think it's interesting. And, you know, even after that show got canceled, they were still just passing through. Um, but, you know, I hope you guys enjoyed. Um, if you have any theories or, or anything, please reach out let me know. Um, in the meantime, don't forget to follow on Instagram and Facebook at Best Virginia Podcast. Um, also, tag me in some photos. Tag me in some pictures of things that, that you guys enjoy, enjoy from around the state. Um, maybe some places from around your hometowns that you like or that you want to want to share and want to get out there um shoot me a message on social medias um shoot me an email at bestvirginiapodcast.gmail.com you know i want to i want to get people involved i have a couple people lined up and a couple things that i'm working out um i promise i do have some big things i'm working on for you guys so uh keep listening i really appreciate it i can't thank you guys enough um 
Also, be sure to to check the link out on my Facebook and Instagram page. Um, that it's the website is Teespring, and go pick up some Best Virginia merch. Uh, you know, I, I continue to get lots of compliments on that logo. Um, again, all thanks to Jemison from Five Star Tattoo. Uh, awesome work, awesome logo. I love it. I, people should be jealous, um, but that's all the more reason to buy it. You know, reach out, get you some swag. So once again, thank you guys so much. I couldn't do it without you. So until next time, besties.